Well, if you would turn to Nehemiah chapter 9, it's rather an ambitious endeavor in now less than 30 minutes to address all of these uh, verses, but we're going to try to do it. Uh, let me just give you a bit of a review for those who just joined us. We're walking through the book of Nehemiah. It's most timely, I might add, uh, that we're doing this. Uh, part of it was due to the election that I had selected it and looking at godly leadership. The theology of Nehemiah is looking at the sovereign hand of God. In chapter 9, it screams, and you'll see that the people of God are called to remain faithful. You'll see that in God's full restoration. All three things are seen in chapter 9. Well, what's going on in 9? Let me set the scene for you. If you recall in chapter 8, the walls are done, the gate is done, and now it's time for a revival among the people. And that's exactly what we see. They gather where this red dot is, which is outside of the water gate, not to be confused with Nixon. And, and at the water gate they gather, and the scriptures are read. It's an all-day event, as the text tells us. And there is a huge response. The response initially is what? How do the people respond with the reading of the scripture, do we say? They rejoiced or did they weep? They wept. There was great sorrow and grief. Why? Probably because of understanding they've really missed the mark in hearing the law read. And Nehemiah says, stop weeping. It's time to rejoice. Because why? This is the time of uh, Sukkoth. This is the time of the festival or uh, feast of tabernacles. We're here. The month of Tishri. This is a Jewish calendar. They do not use January, February, March. They have different names for the months and the calendar is different than ours. But we're, at, we're really at the same time frame as we are at the moment, which is the middle, or well, it would be more at the first part of October. And this is where we are in chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1. And uh, I, I'm going to read quite a bit, but it's imperative. And you'll see where we're going, hopefully, as we do this. So in 9.1, it says, On the 20th, 4th day, the 20th, 2nd day of the festival ends. So what do you expect everyone to do? Pack their bags, go home. Right? I mean, this is a long time to be celebrating. And notice what it says. The Israelites assembled. In other words, they remained. They moved from grief to celebration. And now watch what happens. It says they were fasting and wearing sackcloth, their heads covered with dust. They've gone back to mourning. The, these... It says, those truly of Israelite descent separated from the foreigners, according to Leviticus 20, they're to set themselves apart from the unclean. And that's what they're doing. Standing, confessing their sins and their iniquities of their ancestors. For one-fourth of the day, they stood at their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God. And for another fourth, they were confessing and worshiping the Lord their God. And this is a revival. That's what's going on here. There's no question. Uh, there is true repentance, true understanding. It says, then the Levites, and this is intriguing to me. Uh, no commentator answered this uh, to my satisfaction, and maybe you can figure it out. We, we saw a group of Levites back in chapter 8, starting in verse 7. 
And now we see another group, and it's not identical, stood on the steps, which I assume is that platform that was built outside the water gate, and called out loudly to the Lord their God. And then we have another group of Levites, and it's not identical either. Some of the names are found in all three lists, and some aren't. So what that tell me, I think we've got a whole group of Levites. How, how else do you teach the word as it's being read to 30 to 50,000 people that are gathered. In chapter 7, we know that that's about the number of people that have assembled. Well, you're going to have to have a lot of teachers. So we got small groups galore, right, as the Levites are mingling among the people. And, and they state in there in chapter 9, verse 5, stand up and bless the Lord your God. This hymn, this prayer that you're going to see here is a, the tone is of praise. Now watch what they do. These are the Levites leading this. May you be blessed, O Lord our God. And remember, what is a Levite? It's a priest. All right. Uh, the various tribes had different occupations. And if you were from the tribe of the Levites, uh, in fact, if you meet someone with the last name Cohen, that's a priestly Jewish line. Cohen is the Hebrew term for priest. It says, may your glorious name be blessed. May it be lifted up above all blessing and praise. Watch this line. You alone are the Lord. It will be repeated. And as we read this, I want you to take note of the names given to the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, along with all the multitude of stars, the earth, and all that is in them. In other words, you are the creator. You are the almighty one. Then it says, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him forth from Ur of the Chaldeans. You changed his name to Abraham when you perceived that his heart was faithful toward you. You established a covenant. And by the way, watch that as we go through this text. With him to give his descendants the land. Watch that as well as we move through here. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, the Parasites. You got it, right? You have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry in the Red Sea. You performed awesome signs against Pharaoh. As we move through this watch, we're going to rehearse the entire Old Testament history. That's what they're doing. Why? They've just been hearing it. <laughs> they've been listening to the law all day. And as they've heard the word of God, they've recognized God is awesome. Right? This is one of the values of, of, of reading scripture, is recognizing who God is and then recognizing who we are, which they'll get to in a minute. And it says, <clears throat> against the servants, against all the people of the land, for you knew that the Egyptians had behaved presumptuously against you. And on it goes, verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. Verse 15, you provided bread from heaven. That's the manna. Verse 16, but they, our ancestors, behaved presumptuously. It's the same word used of the Egyptians earlier on in the Hebrew. They were no different in how they behaved. Despite all that you've done, they rebelled and did not obey your commandments. What you see in the verse 5 through 15 is an exaltation of God. Now watch what happens because now we're going to level the Israelites for being unfaithful. They refused, verse 17, to obey, did not recall your miracles that you had performed among them. Instead, they rebelled and appointed a leader to return to their bondage in Egypt. 
But you are a God of forgiveness, merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and, and failing in your loyal love. That, by the way, we could teach all day long on loyal love. That term is chesed in Hebrew. It's awesomeness of love, covenantal love. It's, it's a loaded term. <laughs> there have been dissertations written on that one word. It's so powerful in the Hebrew. You did not abandon them even when they made a cast image of a calf for themselves. Verse 19, due to your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. The pillar of cloud led them. Verse 20, you imparted your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your name from their mouths. You provided water. I love verse 21. For 40 years, you sustained them. Even in the desert, they did not go wanting. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. It's the line I use when we fly across the ocean to Israel. <laughs> May your feet not swell, right? You gave them kingdoms and peoples. You allocated them to every corner. And on he goes. And verse 26, nonetheless, they grew disobedient and rebelled against you. They disregarded the law. They killed the prophets. You had solemnly admonished them in order to cause them to return to you. They committed atrocities. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their adversaries. They opposed you. But I love this. In your abundant compassion, you provided them, the text tells us, you provided them with deliveries to rescue them from their adversaries. Then they were at rest again. They went back to doing evil before you. They abandoned them to your enemies and they gained dominion over them. When they again cried to you in your compassion, you heard from heaven, but you solemnly admonished them to return. They sinned against you. Oh, it's a bit redundant, isn't it? You get the idea. Reminds you of the book of Judges. Verse 30, you prolonged your kindness with them for many years. And you solemnly admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. Still they paid no attention as you delivered them into the hands of the resident peoples. However, due to your abundant mercy, you did not do away with them altogether. You did not abandon them because you are a merciful and compassionate God. So... Verse 32, now our God, the great, powerful, awesome God who keeps covenant fidelity. I mean, this whole thing started with God's covenant to Abraham. Do not regard as inconsequential all the hardship that's befallen us, our kings, our leaders, our priests, our prophets, our ancestors, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria unto this very day. <laughs> You are righteous with regard to all that has come on us, for you have acted faithfully. It is we, watch this, who have been in the wrong. Once again, they're repenting. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our ancestors have not kept your law. They have not paid attention to your commandments and your testimonies by which you have solemnly admonished them. Even when they were in the kingdom and benefiting from your incredible goodness that you had lavished on them in the spacious and fertile land you had set before them. They did not serve you, nor did they turn from their evil practices. And so they break out in confession here at this segment. 
we could spend an entire week here uh, studying this text. And I wish we had that luxury. And maybe this week you can go back and look at this in light of the notes. But there are a few things I want to highlight as we move through this. Setting the scene, you, st you see in your notes, once again, the Levites are leading it, as we talked about. And we move to celebrating God's character here in 5b through 15. Now let me kind of give you some overarching umbrellas. First of all, the entire prayer is summarizing again, as I stated, the entire Old Testament. <clears throat> you see this in your notes. I highlight particular texts that are highlighted or seen. That is the creation, Abraham, Exodus, the wanderings, time of the judges, the prophets, the exiles. It's all there, those major players in, in this rehearsing. In the first section, as we talked about, we're seeing God and solely God. In fact, every sentence in this section, God is the subject. And in each section of, of these, uh, in verses 6 through 15, we're looking at God's mercy, his power, his righteousness, and his covenant-keeping salvation. You'll see this even in the latter part of the prayer, but it's bookend or put up against people's uh, sin and their evil. <clears throat> 5 through 15 reminds me of Psalm 106. And I want you to turn to Psalm 106. Uh, the last page of your notes, if you want some further exercise this week, I challenge you to co compare Psalm 106 with Nehemiah 9. Psalm 106, and we're not going to read the whole thing. I just want to highlight what's going on here. Psalm 106 is very similar. It says, praise the Lord, give thanks. But then he walks through how God has delivered the people and yet their response. In verse 43 of Psalm 106, he says, many times he, that is God, delivered them, but they have a rebellious attitude and, and degraded themselves by their sin. He took notice of their distress when he heard their cry for help. Deliver us, verse 47, O Lord our God, gather us from among the nations, then we will give thanks to your holy name. The Lord God of Israel deserves praise. And that's what's seen here in Nehemiah 9, isn't it? As they rehearse who God is in this first section, there's a recognition, as we're going to soon see, that they need deliverance. At the bottom of your notes, I quote from McConaughey in his commentary. He says, every act of love on God's part was met and matched by one of disloyalty on the part of the people. And that's what you're going to see as we move into the next section. As we move to this next section, and that is 16 through 31. As I mentioned, it reminds me of the book of Judges. There is this cycle that goes through. Israel disobeys, God pulls out a paddle, they cry out for mercy, and he delivers, and it keeps going. What's interesting as we go through this cycle, similar to the book of Judges, it's a downward spiral. Or you might argue there's a crescendo of evilness, of depravity. <clears throat> Look at your notes here, and you can see in the middle of page two, there are six of these cycles that are highlighted in this section. And each time, something is stressed about God. 
And there is an overlap, but you'll see in the first reference, God's forgiveness. The second is God's mercy. And on it goes, and you can see those. And so as you move through this, we see the awfulness of humanity, but God's greatness. It's really the book of Revelation as well, by the way. As you move through Revelation, it shows, even with Christ sitting on the throne and a thousand years of him reigning, and Satan is chained, yet at the end of the thousand years, people will rebel. The, the, need, the need for a savior, the need for the, the humanity to be, even God's mercy and grace, they're still going to rebel. And that's the idea that's being stressed in this downward spiral. Questions on this? These six references highlighted in this section. Yes, Gary. I just say that it's kind of like what they do in the New Testament. God says, bring to your remembrance. Bring to your remembrance over and over and over. Yeah, and in fact, there are several, that leads us to the, there's several bullet points that are down here that I want you to highlight or see from this section. First of these, as we look at this, each section focuses on the characteristic of God. And, and, and similar to what you're saying, Gary, is that there's a recognition, you alone are God. You are the sovereign one. Look at verse, look at verse six, verses six and seven, which started this. You alone are the God, and we see that repeat in verse seven. But then look at verse seventeen. It says they refused to obey; they did not recall. But here it is: You are a God of forgiveness, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, and unfailing in your loyal love. And so what we see in these six cycles is number one, there's a stress again as I've stated on the characteristic of God and who he is. Speaking of the characteristics of God, verses six and seven, think of Christ's uh, command in the opening of his what we call Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. Yeah. Six and seven, that. Yeah, there's a similarity to how Christ has taught us to pray, hallowed be your name, an exaltation of the Lord. That's where it begins, right? It doesn't begin with praying for Aunt Betsy, but recognizing who our sovereign God is. Then we move to Aunt Betsy. All right, well, there's a clear understanding of God's grace and mercy in the life of Israel. You can't miss that. It's seen several times. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, it highlights it, that you were faithful towards us via Abraham. And then look at verses 31 and 32. It says, however, due to your abundant mercy, you did not do away with them altogether. All right? And so that is echoed through this list. There's another major theme, and that is the land of Israel. I highlighted this earlier to you. This is vital why would it be so important? <laughs> because this group of Jews just came out of Babylon back to the land. They just built the walls. And they're claiming the promises God gave to them of restoring the land. This is why, the way, by the way, side note, there will be no resolution in Israel until the Lord comes back. <laughs> land is vital. It's vital to the Palestinians, vital to the Israeli. That's why the idea of, well, why don't you just go over here and move? We'll give you land over there. Mm -mm. This is the land. It's vital. It goes to the promises. And this is what we see here with uh, Abraham and the Israelites. And so that's stressed throughout this section. 
and that the Lord is a covenantal keeping God. And, and, and again, it's echoed. And look at verses 24 through 25. Notice what the text says. I didn't read this. I skipped over it. But your descendants entered and possessed the land. You subdued before the Canaanites who were the inhabitants. You delivered them into their hand. Verse 25. You, they captured fortified cities and the fertile land. The text goes on to state, you just didn't handle the, get a parcel of land. You got a house that was fully functional. The vineyards were there. The, the wine presses were there. God gave it all to you as he disciplined and removed the Canaanites. Another aspect that we see is that God's judgment is just. There is no one standing here outside the water gate that say, you know, God, you're really, you're cruel. We didn't deserve this. We see this in a couple places. Look at verses 16 and eight through 18. He says, But they, our ancestors, behaved presumptuously. I mentioned this. They refused to obey and did not recall your miracles that you have performed. They're not innocent here, is what the text is telling us. Look at verses 29 through 30. You admonish them. But again, he uses the same term he used in the text I just read, the same term used of the Egyptians. You did not obey their commandments. They sinned against your judgments. Those by which an individual, if he obeys them, will live. They boldly turned from you. They rebelled and did not obey. There is no excuse. They deserved it. <laughs> but God is uh, loaded. Yeah, it, it's loaded. They're, yeah, and, and it's serving this contrast. They did this, but God did this, or but God is this. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, Al. So the characteristic of God, understanding of God's grace, the land is prominent, God's judgment. And I'm going to add one more. And that is, these cycles demonstrate a Savior is needed. There needs to be a heart change. We need a new covenant. It's not going to happen. That's the, whole, that's the whole purpose of Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 3. You know, how do you get out of this cycle? Right? You know, they repent, they repent again. Like telling my daughter... You, you know, she goes, I'm sorry I didn't make the bed this morning. I said, I don't want to hear sorry again. <laughs> you're done. <laughs> make the bed. <laughs> that's, that's how you know. tell me if you're truly sorry. God publicly displayed him at the death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate, this is Romans 3.25, his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. Ultimately, it's going to be through Christ. And what he's accomplished. And again, that I think is one of the major threads of this entire book. Is we need something else. This isn't complete. And we live on the other side of that completeness through Christ. Isn't that glorious? And so the, the pattern can be broken through Christ. I got a question on your notes there. Why is it good news for God's distressed people that God makes a name for himself? Why is that so important? It's, it's highlighted several times in this prayer. Why is it good news that God needs to make a name for himself? 
for his. We have such finite minds that are outside of Christ. And, you know, we have to be reminded. That's why they had to do memorials all throughout the Old Testament. We still do today. Memorial, reminder to the people. Good. Gary? The key word's distressed. If he gave us everything we wanted, we wouldn't remember his name. He distresses us, so that makes a name for himself. Okay, so it sh shows our dependence on him. What else? Why is it good news? Well, he alone. Good. So, based upon who he is, it brings comfort. Yeah. His people. And so, we want a God that can, is in charge, is sovereign, who makes a name for himself. Good. <coughs> Anything else? Yes. Jason. It shows that he is not like us. People fail us. Hmm. So, definition of the Bible is who is God, who are we, and what is the relationship between us? Mm, yeah, who is God and who are we? And so I ask you this morning, do you need to rehearse the names of God? <laughs> I do. As, as I think through COVID and Europe's now cracking down again and you see that and you see the election and all that's going on in our country, it's like, okay... I need to step back. God, you are the great one. You are the almighty one. You're the one, the compassionate God. Or I look at my own failures, even this week, you know, running a little testy, a bit impatient. No, I know it's shocking. But it's um, so reminded, okay, no, Lord, you're in charge. You are the God. I, and I am one of your creatures. <laughs> you're the, the merciful God. And so rehearsing this, Yes, for this distressed group of Israelites. It's reminding, I mean, think about this. They have much to celebrate. They just completed the walls. This has been a huge victory. The enemy was squelched. Great news. And yet, understanding, no, we need God's mercy. We need his grace. Well, and that closes out this prayer, a calling for God's mercy, because... I love it. The people clearly understand they're no different than their forefathers. <laughs> they're not the frozen chosen. They're not the, the, the uh, special elite group. They're not the Green Beret in Christianity or, Israel, <coughs> you know, Judaism. Top of page three. This prayer is not breathing out, Kidner writes, rebellion, nor complaining of injustice. But neither is it pretending that to serve and enrich a foreign regime is what was promised to Abraham and his seed. The great distress which ends this prayer is a sign of life and of a vision that has not been uh, tamely given up. Because the end of the prayer is, Lord, deliver us even from the Persians. Give us the freedom that we have longed for. And throughout, if you look at the intertestament period, the time between the Old and the New Testament... There's this longing. So when Christ comes on the scene, they're hoping he's going to overthrow Rome. That they'll have the freedom that they had once during the time of David. 
two things we see. God's forgiveness and mercy are greatly needed. They recognize that. As they rehearse the history of Israel, it's a reminder that they too are no different. And secondly, they also recognize that God will bless if they repent. You know what's interesting? Turn back to the first part of this prayer at verse 7. There is one person in this list and only one who's called faithful. It wasn't the Israelites during the time of the Exodus. It wasn't the time of the wanderings. But notice what it says. You changed his name to Abraham when you perceived that his heart was faithful towards you. That's the call. Abraham serves as a model for the rest of the Israelites. And by the way, that's true in the New Testament as well. You get to the book of Hebrews 11, for instance. One who is faithful. Oh, did Abraham doubt at times? Yeah, but he never doubted God's promise. Did he run ahead of God? Yep, thought he could help God in fulfilling the promise. But he never doubted the promise itself. And that is why Abraham can be called faithful. And why he serves as a model for us even today. Well... What do we do? What do we run with here? Let me give you three things to, to hang on your beak. First of all, in your notes, I state the cycle of failure mercy that six times it's given in 16 through 31 of Nehemiah 9, rehearsed by the Levites, gives us hope and peace. Through the work of Christ, we have confidence and assurance that we have forgiveness. I, I, there's a quote in the last page by the Puritan uh, John Flavel, who states, As God did not at first choose you because you were high, so he will not forsake you because you were low. Isn't that great? Who are we that God should choose us? Right? But he did. And if he went to such great lengths, do you not think he will continue to provide and care for you? And that's the promise to the Israelites. As many times as they have blown it, there was a reminder to them that, no, God made a covenant with Abraham, and he is going to keep that, right? And well, it's part of the covenant, that you'll have the land, that you will bless all nations. Remember? And you see that in the text. Go back, look at it in verse 8 of chapter 9. When you perceive that his heart was faithful, you established, and there it is, a covenant with him to give to his descendants. You have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. Despite the failures, God is faithful. And, and it's such a great reminder this morning, isn't it? <clears throat> I meet believers who, the albatross the, of guilt, of sin in the past. In fact, I was just talking to someone yesterday who said, well, you know, uh, I've, I've blown it here and here. And I said, isn't God good to forgive well, I, you know, we we're talking about ministry. He so, said, well, I don't want to disappoint anyone. I said, well, that's all of our prayers, <laughs> right? We pray, Lord, guard my eyes, my mouth, my hands, my feet, so that I, I don't distract from the gospel. So, yeah, it's just a great reminder. And so you see this cycle of failure and mercy reminding us. Secondly, we must live our lives according to his supremacy, we serve a great God. I wrote, our words and actions must reflect his lordship. Mediocrity cannot be present in our devotion to God. <clears throat> I had some fellows in Greek class over the years when I would teach it. They were looking to go into ministry. 
and there's only a couple, but I pulled him into my office and I said, uh, either get with the program or drop because we don't need a lazy pastor. <laughs> we don't need someone who's not committed to the text and studying the word. And that's true for all of us as believers, isn't it? Romans 12.1 states, after, after rehearsing God's mercy and God's justification, what does he say? It's our reasonable service. And then he moves into duty. There's a quote by another Puritan, John Bunyan. I think I'm on a Puritan kick today. Forgive me. But uh, no, don't forgive me. That's great. Good stuff. And there's gold mines in the Puritan writings. It says, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. Isn't that a great line? I mean, put that on your dashboard today. Now you think about as these Israelites are rehearsing their forefathers and all their shortcomings, it ought to scare them to death. I don't want to impugn or, or question or, or abuse the love that God has extended to me. And that's a reminder to all of us. It's our reasonable service. And then let me give you one more. Even a slight understanding, I would argue, of the graciousness of God. You don't have to fully understand what Hesed means of the Hebrew. That's okay. But a, just a glimpse should result in an enormous expression of gratitude. Remember that justice, this is Woodrow Kroll, who taught for, uh, walked through the Bible for many years. He says, justice is for those who deserve it. Mercy is for those who do not. The word gratitude, I believe, occurs 40 times in the New Testament. 30, almost 30 of those occurrences are in Paul's writings. Where he calls for the church to give thanks. To walk in gratitude. I think of Colossians. It's a text that we're going through at our church. And I want you to look at Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. And we'll end with this. Therefore, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, therefore, just as you receive Christ's mercy and understand his compassion, therefore, just as you've received his forgiveness and all that that entails, he says, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and firm in your faith, just as you were taught and overflowing. Did you catch that? With thankfulness. Wow. As the rehearsal of Israel's history is unleashed in Nehemiah 9, we should break out in song. The sackcloth should go to be removed. The ashes should be removed as we realize, no, we serve a great and compassionate God. For he alone is worthy to be praised, right? Well, Mr. Tom Flynn, our Irish saint, do you have some final words for us? I will pray. You, you pray? That's right. So, Father, with those words, go before us today. May we be known as men of great gratitude to you. May our service reflect the 
amazing forgiveness you have lavished on us. And may we not lose sight of the hope and peace we have because of who you are, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.